of our ushers will hand you one. It's really wonderful to, to have uh, Andy Kamiski as our guest speaker today. We've been in a series of teachings every fall, every September, October or so. We've, we refocus on our five particular values, our five M's. Uh, we are a monastic community, a multiracial community uh, focused on emotional health, marriage to Christ, and we are a community that is missional. And over the past few weeks, we've been diving into all of those. And last week, I gave part one of, out of part two, two parts of our marriage to Christ value. And last week, I talked about to be married to Christ is to impact our married lives and our single lives. And I mentioned last week that uh, in addition to that, to be married to Christ is about the intersection of spirituality and sexuality. And it's important that we see the two uh, as connected. And so I wanted to bring in Andy to talk really about the second part of that through his story and through a wonderful passage of scripture. And Andy's going to be leading us uh, next week at our leaders retreat as we talk about sexuality, spirituality, uh, and following Jesus. Andy is the executive director and founder of Desert Stream, a living waters ministry. It's a ministry that addresses the roots of sexual and relational issues that ensnare Christians into unhealthy living and people generally. And for people experiencing some form of sexual brokenness, that would be all of us, all right? For, for, for those who are experiencing some form of sexual brokenness, all of us in this room, I don't care what family you came from, I don't care what you're, how you grew up, we all have some form of sexual brokenness. His ministry has offered hope and healing for thousands of people. He's the, the author of a few books. We have a few downstairs, one called Naked Surrender and Strength and Weakness. So you can pick that up downstairs at the end of the service. Uh, he's been married for 37 years, has four kids. He lives in Kansas City, and this is his, his first time preaching in uh, New Life. And so at every service, whenever, whenever we get a guest in, good hospitality is we don't just go, oh, we're glad you're here, a little pitter-pat here. We give them the best ovation we can. So join me in giving Andy a Queens Boulevard ovation as he comes up here. Hey, thank you so much. So happy to be here. As far as I'm concerned, the best message has already been given, which was that amazing, like, giving talk. Wasn't that awesome? That's changing me. I've heard it three times. It's changed me more every time I've heard it. So you got the good stuff, now you get me. So bless you. Anyway, I, my goal is to die fruitful to die surrounded by fruitful people. I don't want to live alone. I don't want to die alone. I want to go down fruitful. Amen? And it's in that spirit that Jesus says in John 12, 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it releases many seeds. I think Jesus is talking about our surrender to him. It means saying, Jesus, you show me your way for my life. I know the way that I see it. I know the way that seems right for me. I'm actually yielding that so that I can be led. That I can deny myself and look to you and look only to you as you make a way for my life. This is challenging for us 
but I think it's the only way to live fruitfully. I'm not so sold on my own plans for fruitfulness, frankly. The key to this fruitfulness is surrendering to the mercy that is there, ever flowing, always seeking to take more ground in the dry and the vulnerable areas of our lives. Mercy, like water itself, always seeks the lowest ground. Will we open our hearts to that flow, or will we repel it in pride? Are our hands symbolic of our hearts open to him, or as prone to closing up and self-defending? John called this mercy living water. He uses it as a prophetic glimpse of the healing power of Christ crucified, Christ raised. Living waters is the mercy released at Calvary. He longs to meet us with this liquid love and so make us fruitful. The key on our part is yielding to it, learning how to to be where he is, to open the hands of our heart, if you will, and receive this mercy that he wants to give to us. I'm going to use my own story of coming out of homosexuality as a glimpse or a little window of this fruitful dying, and I'm going to parallel the good story of the Samaritan woman in John 4. Now, don't check out with the gay thing. That's a flashpoint for many of us. I urge you instead to fill in the gaps with your own story of sexual or relational brokenness. Has the power of your own stream, the good, troublesome waters of your sexuality become polluted by pornography? Maybe your sexuality has been poisoned by someone else's sin, quite apart from your desire. Someone else imposed their lustful desires upon you. Maybe your waters tend to overflow the banks in any number of different sexual immoralities, very few of which are homosexual. Most of you are just good old heterosexual idolaters. Amen? Let's have a hand for the heterosexual idolaters. Congratulate yourselves on a job terribly done. (laughs) Or maybe you just kind of staggered into church from this poisonous world and just said, forget the whole sexual thing. It's a mess. I don't want anything to do with it. I'm repenting of sex unto Jesus. I want the waters stopped. Amen? That's, for some of us, that's our conclusion. You know, better to be sterile than to, to have love childs. So take heart. Jesus and his mercy is more powerful than your sexual brokenness. Let's have mercy be the stronghold, not lust or fear or dehumanizing patterns. Let's let mercy be the strongholds in our bodies. Amen? Amen. 
so that we can go about offering ourselves in ways that give life and that doesn't confuse or intimidate or cause us to take depressing steps backwards. Let's look at the Samaritan woman, how Jesus treated her. First of all, he revealed to her that his mercy is greater than shame, her shame. This woman had a lot of bad shame, something inside of her that somehow agreed that she was flawed, inferior, unworthy of love, and particularly unworthy of a holy man's love, especially a Jewish holy man's love. Part of this was due to the fact that she was a Samaritan. Jesus, of course, was a Jew. The Samaritans had been good, devout people, traditionally religious, like some of us growing up, Catholics, Nazarenes, Pentecostals. We inherit a tradition, and we think it's pretty good, and we want our parents to like us, so we kind of go through the motions, but it's just kind of a good tradition. But then with the Samaritans, the Canaanites, idolaters, uh, pagan peoples, invaded the Samaritans and, and created a real shame, a hybrid of a good religious tradition with, with a kind of sensational pagan idolatry. And it caused shame to be conceived in the hearts of every Samaritan, generation upon generation, till that shame was just as natural as the air that they breathed. And an aspect of that shame is that Jews do not relate to a mixed people. So she would have lived all of her life under the scorn of the Jewish people. Also, as a woman in that culture, she was considered more sexually suspect than the man, especially a holy man. Jesus himself would have known, steer clear of any woman who's by herself getting water at a well at midday. All the good, clucky women who had little bands of little peer groups of women would come up together, chatting merrily, talking about social gossip, you know, so on and so forth in the morning because it wasn't hot. So any woman that was by herself was evidently ashamed, conflicted, and isolated. Now, in truth, this woman's ethnicity and gender were not inferior, but bad shame had taught her something different. She had been subject all of her life to the sharp glance, the cutting word, which, which revealed her place in the culture and kept her in it and punished her with it were she to step out of bounds. Bad shame is mostly expressed in the eyes. We can say far more than words can with how we look at people. The squinting eye, the profiling eye, the eye that sizes people up and says, you're not very pretty, you're not very smart, you're not very educated, you don't have much money, whatever the case might be. We get put into our place by glances all the time. And when we begin to agree with this, when we internalize it, when we just say, well, that's just how it is, this bad shame can also repel 
divine mercy, the mercy that can be our freedom. It's not founded on God at all, but on the traditions of men. And Jesus hated these traditions. And he told men so, as in Mark 7, 8, you let go of God's commands to the religious, but you are holding on to the traditions of men. Jesus hated that. So Jesus dissolved those traditions and the fruit of those traditions, which is the bad shame woven into the fabric of of entire people groups. He broke it through mercy. He drew near to one who believed herself far from him. And his warm eyes, his kind words, his kingdom, merciful presence broke the bonds of that bad shame. It has power, power to challenge what we just think is reality, and then a greater reality in the form of a purer and more powerful love encounters us and causes us to say, oh, this is different. This is not like other people. This is not the way the world is. This is God coming in to the world and setting things right, breaking the traditions of God and revealing the the traditions of man and revealing the mercy of God. So he makes this claim to her that his almighty mercy could become hers like an interior fountain that could well up within her, that could be greater than the shame greater than the old beliefs, greater than the agreement that I actually don't have any place on this planet. There's no place for me. It's a constrained place, and it's getting smaller. This fountain of mercy says, no, I'm welling up. I'm welling up. I'm welling up right here. I'm creating a cistern full of pure water for myself, my family, for others. Wherever I am, the rule and reign of mercy will be. That's what Jesus means when he says, hey, the water you're drinking here, you're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink the water I give, you'll never thirst, and it will spring up within you forever. Mercy breaks the power of bad shame and its source, the traditions of men. It breaks like waves until it's ours. So it's okay. If you don't have much of it right now, who cares? You're getting it. You're here. Jesus called you. You love him. You call out to him. Even if you don't just live in the mercy, there's more mercy coming. It comes like waves over and over and over again. And then we start, we catch it, don't we? We get it, we catch it, we live in it. It resists the hatred. It resists the judgments. We receive the critical words or gaze, and we just say, are you kidding? (laughs) We laugh in its face. We give mercy back. Are you kidding me? You know who I am? I'm deeply loved forever, and I'm welling up. Right here, it's welling up. It can't be stopped. 
so much more powerful than your flimsy traditions. Now, my story. What do I know about gender shame? What do I know about, you know, you know, ethnic inferiority? You know, not, not much. I'm, I'm a white dude, sort of in the empowered middle class set, you know what I'm saying? But I do know about brokenness. And I know that you can look pretty good on the outside, but have big fault lines inside that the enemy plays upon and, and increases till there are big gaps within you. And that was true for me. My issue had to do with gender identity, had to do with this belief, false belief, early on that I was utterly inferior as a guy. I had two older brothers who were always beating the crap out of me. Good-natured, demonized brothers, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, good intention, you know. Growing up is hard if you're a sensitive kid. My two older brothers were quite a lot older, and they always took it out on me. And my dad was kind of wounded guy, so he would just, you know, he was just a shadowy figure. You know, could have been some good stuff there, wasn't much. I reacted, set up a, a big wall and a way of defining myself that was anything other than him. And, you know, problems, big problems growing up, man. One of the main things we got to accomplish as kids is making peace with the body, making peace with our masculine bodies, our feminine bodies. And some of us are dealt a pretty bad hand, and that's hard going, and we live within this little, dark, increasingly dark cosmos where the enemy is always accusing us, and then we come to an age at 10, 11, 12, we're coming of age sexually, and we realize that our sexual desires are going sideways. They're not going forward to the opposite gender, which is good and right and true and troublesome. It's going sideways to your friends. It's like, wow, they were right. The bullies were right. The playground attackers were right. I am a faggot. I am queer. That is who I am. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, I grew up in Southern California, so not so hard to come out as a gay person, to find other peers, junior high, high school, as I did. Went to college Got involved with the Gay Student Union, now it's LBGT, lots of other variants on the gender identity theme. But regardless, it becomes a culture. It becomes protection over and against them. Baptized, confirmed, citizen of queer nation. That was me. Came home from school. Mom and dad, you need to know I'm gay. Deal with it. I'm gay. Deal with it. Sounds like a defense, doesn't it? I'm beginning to sound defensive, aren't I? And I think, honestly, it is defensive. This is myself. I don't know what's going on here. I haven't known for years. Now I have a name. Now I have a people group. Deal with it. That's a pretty hard pill for parents to swallow. Why? Because your parents made you. And your parents have good reason to want you to be able to to generate life. Amen? Amen? I want you to be fruitful too. Right? Every parent wants that. Now, my dad didn't know how to respond, but my mom, best response. She's a good woman. Tips to mom. If you're used to crying all the time, and then you cry in front of your kids, they're not going to take you too seriously. If you're always turning on the waterworks. My mom didn't. She was pretty, you know, in some ways an emotionally detached woman. So when she cried, 
I thought, "Uh oh, <laughs> I've lanced her hard. I, I, I'm, I'm hurting her." What I discovered in her response, it was a very simple one. She said, "You know, I've known a lot of people in that world." She said they lived really hard lives. She said, I want, I want more for you. She didn't say, I wanted more, as if now you're gay, you're gone, it's over. She said, I want more for you. And that pierced my heart. Because I thought, maybe there's more. Maybe there's more. I had all the freedom in the world to be a gay man. Maybe there's more. Is there more? Is there the possibility that that freedom is actually a low ceiling? What if one wants to break that ceiling? Can mercy break that ceiling? I say yes. My mom believed it. She wasn't an expert. She just loved her son. She had vision for a fruitful son. And it wounded her to think that I would forfeit that fruitfulness for my freedom to be gay. Well, ultimately I came to faith, cried out for mercy. I, I was at first going to a pretty good church, good teaching, truthful teaching, a lot of zeal. The pastor was a kind of rigid, conservative guy. So he would look at me, and I would see that playground look. I would see that bad shame look. Honestly, he'd look at me, and he'd kind of be like, well, what's the matter with you? That's what his look said to me. What's wrong with you? Everything, a lot of things. I mean, what category do you want to know? But what that told me was, this isn't really a, a really safe place. This isn't really a merciful place. It's a truthful place. It's not a merciful place. The water's not flowing here. So I started going to another church, a little earthier, a little smaller, not quite as effective, maybe. But pastor would share about his journey, much further ahead than me, but as if he were on the way, hadn't arrived. And that freed me to say, i got a ways to go too, but I think I can follow you in this. Holy Spirit released in, its, in, in, in his members, Jesus' members. So the gifts flowing, so that when we got together, people would have words for each other. Not always accurate, not always right on, but often... More than enough to build the body up in the spirit of prophecy. Amen. And uh, there was this one woman. She was a little imbalanced, actually. She, she was. She was maybe mentally ill. I don't know. I never diagnosed her, but she certainly was not a well-adjusted woman. But she certainly loved the Holy Spirit. And she was so gifted in the things of the Holy Spirit. And she would go around and give words to people. And I would see her. And she scared me to death. I'm not saying that she's a model of Christian community, but I'm saying that at least there was a freedom for people to offer their gifts, however awkwardly, amen? And then, of course, we just have to sort out what we're going to take or not, right? I mean, we're all gatekeepers over our own hearts. I don't have to take your word for me, right? Uh, you just give it, and then I have to decide whether I think it's right or not, amen? That's a great freedom. So... She came roaring up to me one morning, 
It was scary. <laughs> she said, do you know who you are? I said, I, um, no, work in progress. I don't, I don't even know what the question is. She said, no, what's your name? And I said, Andy. She said, no, your name is Andrew, which is true. She goes, do you know what Andrew means in the Greek? Andrew is a disciple, so it is a Greek word. She said, it means masculine one. She said, you're God's masculine one. That was it. She turned around, roared off, looking for another victim. Honestly, one of the truest words I ever received. Because what was she doing as a convert, as someone whose heart was being transformed by Jesus, she was seeing with the eyes of Jesus, not according to the world. That's why St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16, in the spirit of the new creation, from, from now on, don't see other people from a worldly point of view. How often do we do that, don't we? We look at people, we size them up, we say, oh, that's him, that's her. Usually it's not for the sake of how do we love them better. It's for a reason to say, this is how I'm going to protect myself from you, because you're this. And if you're going to hell, you probably deserve it by your grotesque choices. Suspicion, you know, we're not so clever. We're just not so merciful. So how wonderful that she was speaking the truth in a way that I could receive. So grateful for her. So grateful for the body that's inspired to listen and to speak the word of God that builds up our fellow members. I love that. I always want to bring a word to church. I want to bring a word for somebody. That's just a good thing to say. Lord, I'm going on Sunday. I want to get good things, great things getting here. Um, but I want to give a word. You've, you've made me alive to, to help build up the body. One word could put a thousand to flight in, in the one next to you. The Holy Spirit does it. It's inspired. It's not just pop psych or, you know. This is the Holy Spirit building the body one gift at a time. Now, all well and good, I was also a sinner I was a destructive sinner. I was still capable of doing damage to others through my sexual sin. In this way, we can be grateful when God in his mercy frees us to have a good shame for the sin in our life. I believe in good shame, too. The shame that causes us to say through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, God, I'm, I'm so uncomfortable. I, I feel in a good way exposed for this area of my life that you're shining a light on that you really want me to deal with in your mercy so that I can become a good gift, so that I, I won't despise the good discipline you have for me. My father, I'm your son now. I'm not a slave, but I'm still kind of acting like one in regards to how I'm still acting out with pornography, when going gets tough in the body, and it always does, takes a long time to really make a transition from one community to another to where you're meaningfully, heartily partaking of Jesus with good Christian friends, right? That takes a lot of time. And in the meantime, there's lots of other people that are saying, hey, I'll have you as a friend with benefits, 
You're a neat guy. We're both lonely. Come on, let's not be uptight about it. We all have needs. The boundary lines are so broken in our culture, people just naturally, there's just no more shame. There's no more shame. The problem today is not so much bad shame. It's an absence of any shame in regards to, I just want to be with you because you're friendly and good and we work together and we're both too stressed out to even think about marriage, but we could have a good evening together. Would you be my main course? (laughs) Honestly, that's what we're dealing with. The people you work with, people who live around you, that's, that's, that's just how it is now. But I want to be a Christian. I didn't get saved to be a hypocrite. I didn't get saved just to become a worldly guy who comes here 90 minutes a week and hears the music and says, oh, that's good. Uh, I guess I'm a Christian by virtue of not being X, Y, or Z. I want to be a Christian. And Jesus takes this really seriously, what we do with our bodies. St. Paul says it like this. You're, you're actually, you've been purchased by the blood and you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. So your bodies really aren't your own anymore. Jesus, in his spousal love, and his almighty merciful love, has laid claim to you. And he's cultivating intimacy with you. Paul says it like this. Uh, he says, your, your body isn't meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. It's not your body is bad, stop doing bad things. It's bad, bad, bad. Welcome to the Christian faith. Rather, he says, your body isn't meant for this. This is working against you. This isn't freeing you to be a good gift. When you offer yourself to someone who doesn't have the courage to really take you up on things for life, You're hurting yourself and you're hurting them. Your body isn't meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is meant for the body. And so there's a way in which we cultivate intimacy with God. We're meant to cultivate trustful honesty, appropriate honesty, with brothers and sisters where we're in a transition of living outside of the lines to wanting to live in that wonderful, straight-ahead way where the waters can find a momentum, where our waters are becoming increasingly clear, where we're actually being prepared to be good gifts, really good friends, maybe a really good spouse. If you've gone over the banks and you're already married, ready to do the hard work of saying, I'm so sorry I've messed this up. I'm so sorry I didn't know what I was doing, and I've really hurt you, and I've really hurt our kids, but, but I love Jesus, and I'm demonstrating my love for him by taking seriously how I've done my part to break down the walls. Now I'm going to, with Jesus' help and the help of my brothers and sisters, just slowly rebuild them so I can get on with the business of being a man who doesn't have to be ashamed in that way, doesn't have to live a divided life, doesn't have to worry that my kids are going to receive unspoken generational sin, mine. Not some distant sins, my sins. Are being, are, uh, my kids are going to be unusually vulnerable because I never worked it out. We can do better, can't we?
Look at what Jesus did with the Samaritan woman. He brings up this incredible gift of living water. Hey, have the water. Awesome. Mystical Jesus, sweet Jesus, sad woman. I bring you joy. Yes, I want joy. You're amazing. And then he says, let's share the joy with your husband. And she's like, ah, husband? You want to talk about what I do with my body? What? Let's just stick with the religious. Let's stay split off. Let's, stay, let's, let's just stay here at this kind of abstract idea of God's love. No, she, he said, where's your husband? She's like, I don't have one. Next question, where's the living water? <laughs> he said, oh, no, you're right. No, that's right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the guy waiting for you down the hill in bed, he's not your husband. You're right. You're currently unmarried. Whoa. Many people walk at that point. When people start dealing with Jesus saying, I actually want the bed of your life to be a solid base for this living water. I'm committed to making the base of your life solid so that this water can achieve all that I intend for it. When God starts dealing with the base, we say, I don't really want you to deal with my base. But this woman said, I'll take the challenge. I believe you're Lord. I can't change the fact that you're the Lord. So I open myself to you. I say, you're the Lord God. You're the man. You're the man. And you're the man with mercy. And I'm going to follow you. Courageous woman. For me, it was just a matter of saying, hey, if I'm going to take this Jesus thing seriously, I got to find a well in this church, in this place. If this is going to become the new community, then where are the sinners? Where are the Christians who want badly enough to be free that they're willing to gather and say, he's given me freedom, I'm not free enough, help me to get more free. Let me call you every day so I'll stop using pornography. Be my friend enough so I have enough gumption to leave this lover behind. To not act like I'm loving him or her when actually I'm just feeding off him or her. I dare not call that Christian love anymore. The greatest expression of love I can have for him or her is to say, I don't love you well and I need to love Jesus more. That's the only way I can show love to you is by making him my priority and living it and not giving the gift that you don't deserve. We need the body for this. Cross Current, one of the groups that my ministry works on, you have great pastors. Pastor Peter is starting a Cross Current group. I urge you to get on board. We're going to be working more with your church. The main group is Living Waters powerful healing opportunity where you develop trust and traction in the community to start living Christianly in the area of, of your heart, the foundation of your fountain, if you will. Now, I had much more healing I needed to get. God was faithful to bring deep healing in the wounded areas of my life. I'm not talking about that as much as I need to. I will talk more about that on Saturday. The deeper healing always essential to our becoming good gifts, 
My wife was on a separate check, wife-to-be in our community. She was being healed of sexual abuse. She was coming out of her own dark areas. And we met each other as worshipers of the one. God called us together. We discovered neither of us could save the other from our aloneness. But in Jesus, we could be good offerings to each other. And to support each other in growing with this Jesus who was the base of our well-being and, and a contingency source for our being able to be good gifts to each other. All we could do was what that woman did when she received this gift from Jesus and welcomed him as Lord is to give it away. She went into her town and said, hey, you got to come hear this man who showed me everything I ever did. So my wife and I thought, we can't help but give away what we've received. And that's been our vocation. We just help churches dig deep wells of mercy where broken people like us can have a fighting chance to come to know him, body, soul, and spirit, so that we can be Jesus for all the Samaritan women who are right outside that door and who need us to see them rightly and to summon the truth of her beauty or his power or their dignity through the mercy of God. We have the gift that wellspring is in it, in us. So let it spring up. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together.